These last three words of Jesus on the cross in John's gospel ring out at the end of this passion narrative. It is finished. It is finished, he says. And I want to ask, have you ever thought about just how peculiar it is that Jesus would say something like this um, at this moment? Really, in light of what's just happened to Jesus, how is it that he could say words like this? It is finished. Though innocent, though righteous, he has been betrayed, rejected, beaten, tortured, abandoned, mocked, scorned, and finally crucified. And at the end of all of this, he says, it is finished. Now, I'd venture to say that when any of us falls victim to some kind of mistreatment or injustice, I'm fairly confident that we don't receive that and then say, it is finished. Quite to the contrary, actually. We rise up and we make threats and we tell our offenders that they better watch their back and we sue people and we slander and we reveal secrets and we blackmail we do, whatever that we, we do whatever we can to take the upper hand in the situation and to vindicate our own name, but not Jesus, not here and not now. Something different is happening here in this story, something otherworldly, something that we need to slow down on Good Friday and consider and make sure that we don't miss. It is finished. The question is, what is it? And what is Jesus saying that it is finished? What's going on here at the cross? And furthermore, what does this have to do with you and what does it have to do with me? After all, we're 2,000 years removed from the moment that these things took place on earth. So to begin to address these questions briefly, we first need to recognize that these words point beyond themselves to something bigger and to something deeper. To say that it is finished implies that a process that had already been put in place, was now coming to completion or reaching its conclusion. So I want us to take two steps back in John's gospel for just a moment to shed some light on what Jesus is saying with these words. The first is to go back to John 4, verse 34, where Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus is sent into the world by God the Father, and he was sent with a task, with a purpose to accomplish. So it is finished then indicates that the task that Jesus was sent for is now actually completed. But let's go one step further back to the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 1. And there, John takes us as far back as is possible in the story. In the beginning was the Word. Echoing the first words of the Bible in the Old Testament, Genesis 1, in the beginning. And he begins... John begins his story of Jesus at the creation moment, signifying to us that all that he's about to unveil in this gospel from start to finish is the culmination and the climax of the story that begins when God says, let there be light. So everything that he's sharing with us is the climax of this moment. We can't get any further back. We can't get any broader perspective than this. And so Jesus accomplishes his specific task given to him by the Father who sent him. And this task is the, the culmination, the completion of this task is the culmination of all that God is doing in the world. So let me pause here for just a moment. If you're here tonight and you're wondering, what in the world is all this hoopla 
about this first century prophet that was crucified on a Roman cross? Why do we get so worked up about this? Then I trust that this movement backwards actually begins to offer an answer to this question. For those of us who follow Christ and believe in Him, we believe and profess that God is the creator of all things, that He made everything that we see, that He made everything that we know, that God is the source of all these things. And that means for us that there is nothing and there is no one, and that includes you and that includes me, that is outside of this story that begins with let there be light. There are no outsiders, no uninvolved, dispassionate observers. There's no UN peacekeepers in this world that God has made. We're all engaged in the plot by virtue of the fact that we are creatures who've been made by someone else. And of course, you and I can deny that should we choose to, but I want to be clear that that is the Christian and the biblical claim about our lives, that they're wrapped up in this story that begins at creation and that reaches its climax here on Good Friday. So back to the story for a moment. God made the world good. He made the world very good. He made humankind in in his image, and he designed us to work in a particular kind of way under his benevolent, sovereign rule. But we didn't like that very much. We don't like to be told what to do, and we made a mess of God's good creation by going our own way. And it says in our Isaiah reading tonight that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And our own way, as Proverbs tells us many times over, doesn't actually lead to life and blessing much like we think it will, but it actually leads us to death and to despair and to frustration. But we turn there often and frequently. We reject God's rightful rule and take up the controls. This is what we call in the Christian church sin. That short word that we don't often like to say. And its consequences are disastrous. And they're tragic. I've used this metaphor before, but sin is like black tar being thrown all over a Picasso masterpiece. Only in this case, the painter is God and the canvas is his good and beautiful creation that he made for us to enjoy. So that instead of shalom, instead of peace and blessing in all areas of life, we find um, that we have war, we have violence, we have shame, we have guilt, we have dishonesty, we have pride, we have contempt, we have rivalry and competition In an unhealthy way, we have unforgiveness, we have pain, and the list goes on. And this is a tragedy in the world that God has made. The world is broken, deeply broken. And human communities are not in harmony with one another, strengthening one another, but in great conflict. Violence is perpetrated all of the time. And you and I experience, at one level or another, we experience the very brokenness of this world, often most commonly in broken relationships, sometimes in shattered dreams, or even within, with evil thoughts within our own hearts and minds as we live through the world and more and more. And we see that in the violence and injustice that is, in, that is inflicted upon, we see all of this brokenness brought to its focus in what is uh, dished out to the innocent man, Jesus, on Good Friday. This is not the way that the world is supposed to be. But actually, beyond tearing the fabric of God's good world, beyond destroying shalom and separating us from one another, sin has the awful consequence. And and this is actually the one that we're usually least concerned about, least able to detect, kind of running in life our own way, the consequence of separating us from the living God. Sin brings a separation. It causes 
a distance. Part of sin's power is making us numb to the reality that God is the one, uh, the one from whom, through whom, and for whom we exist as human creatures. To be alienated from Him is to be continually, continuously frustrated, much like a Ferrari stuck in first gear. We know deep down that we were made for more. We know it. We, we have a sense of it, an intuitive grasp of this. But for some reason, we can't seem to get there on our own. So we're frustrated. So it is finished means actually that this thing that is blocking or frustrating the ultimate goal of the story that begins in creation, the goal being that God would have his image uh, shining through the people that he's made um, for himself and carrying out his rightful rule through our bodies, our wills, our minds, living in right relation to him in worship of his glory, that being the goal, that this goal is actually frustrated through the brokenness of the world. And this this thing, whatever it is, evil or sin, that blocks us from this goal, when Jesus says it is finished, is finally and decisively overcome at the cross. And the goal is achieved of a reunion with the God who made us, a oneness with him and his life. And and we didn't accomplish this goal. We didn't do it. We didn't overcome. He did it on his own with no help from us. In fact, if we have any part to play in the story that we've read tonight, it's the part of the crowd which we read aloud fittingly. From one angle, the cross is Jesus taking upon himself the very worst of human sin and wickedness. Injustice, violence, torture, murder upon an innocent man. And we recognize, we recognize our own sin today as a distant cousin of what is manifest in Jerusalem at Passover. Passover, the feast that celebrates God's saving of Israel's sons, is celebrated on this day by the taking of the life of God's only son. The irony of that moment is not to be missed. That's the solemn part of this day. God gives gifts of grace, but we continue to steal and to connive and to rebel and to run away. Yet at the cross, Jesus bore the brunt of our sin against God. He bore all of our rebellion and our denial and our outright hatred of God and of his rule over us. And he took it there and he absorbed it upon himself and he became victorious over it in that moment. So sure, the crucified aren't normally considered the victorious ones. But this was different. The words, it is finished, are not words of a defeated victim, but words of a conqueror, a victor, a man who has accomplished his task, the thing that he set out to do. In Isaiah 53, we read that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. He actually did it. He took this on himself. It didn't happen to him. So looking back for, again in John's gospel, Jesus says in John 10, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this authority is portrayed in the, in the passion narrative that we just read when Jesus says, I am he, and the people fall back and fall down. 
Or when Jesus tells Pilate that he only has authority because it's derived authority that's been given to him from someone more powerful than he is. In other words, this is a voluntary offering, a voluntary taking up that Jesus is undergoing here in the Passion narrative. In John 13, Jesus takes this towel and wraps it around his waist. And it says, John begins the introduction of John 13 by saying that Jesus loved them to the end. And the towel and the washing of the feet is a sign of what is to come the next day on Friday, today, Good Friday, of the crucifixion. Of Jesus loving us to the end. The cross is the voluntary offering of love for creatures gone astray. The cross is Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself loving us to the end. And this love isn't merely expressed by absorbing all of the evil and wickedness that we could perpetrate against him upon himself and overcoming it at the cross. But also it is by bearing for us in himself the wrath of God for our sin. Now, theologians love to deny this. It's almost vogue to deny this aspect of the biblical truth. But the scriptures affirm it again and again and again. And so must we, or we miss something very powerful about the cross. God's wrath and judgment are set against sin. And this is simply the flip side of his love for his world. Evil in God's good creation must be dealt with, not simply swept under the rug and and put away and just ignored. It must be dealt with. And God in his holiness and in his purity and his love for his world, he cannot simply look the other way. So instead of inflicting this punishment upon those who deserve it upon us, He mysteriously and gloriously inflicts it upon himself in the person of his own son. This is not an angry father inflicting punishment in an unjust way upon an innocent son, as if these two are separate people in the story. This is the united love of the triune God being expressed in a profound and powerful way where God the Father is treating sin as it must be treated upon himself in God the Son. There's great unity, there's Trinitarian love on display for us in the cross in the most brilliant of ways. God bearing our punishment upon himself in the person of his son. The king dying for the people that he loves. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as Jesus bears the worst of our sin and the awfulness of God's wrath against sin, he goes to that place, that God-forsaken place, which is the end of all sin. He is despised and rejected and forsaken, not because of his own guilt or issues, but because of ours as an innocent man. And he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were our words to say, not his. This was our punishment to feel, not his. But Jesus in love, 
takes these things upon himself for us. For us, for you and for me. In a very personal and profound way. This is the key. Jesus was submitting himself for you. He was subjecting himself to these things for me and for you. It was a substitution. This cross was meant for us. But he ended up there so that we don't have to. He died so that we can live. He is accursed so that we can be blessed. Christ for us. Christ on the cross for us. So it, it, the work of God in Jesus upon the earth to make a way for us to become that which we have always been designed to be, bearers of his glory, reflectors of his image throughout the world. It is finished. The way has been made for us through the cross of Jesus. Though sin alienated us, we are brought back home. Though we deserve death, we are given life. Though we deserve judgment, we are shown mercy. Though we offended, we are forgiven. Though we are estranged, we are reconciled. Though enslaved, we are redeemed. And though guilty, we are declared righteous, made right. Though dirty, we are washed. And finally, though dead, though dead, we are made alive. We are made alive. This is the power of the cross. The power of the cross. It is finished, Jesus says. The way is made. Christ has died, as we say, week after week in our our celebration of communion. Once for all, it is finished. So nothing, nothing more actually needs to be done. The story has found its resolution. We can get out of first gear. We can join with God and work for shalom in his world around us by the power of the Holy Spirit actually living and dwelling in and among his people. The question is, will you participate? Will you participate? Will you receive this blessing of God that's poured out for us on the cross? Before the spectacle of the cross, will you recognize the severity of your own going your own way, doing your own thing, and forsake it afresh tonight? Will you be amazed and won over by the love of God in Christ who died for you? And I want to be clear that I'm talking to all of us, those who have believed long ago, those who've walked with Jesus for a long time, and those of you who have never believed, who've never come and laid yourself at the foot of the cross. All of us need to hear this again. You no longer have to sit back in timidity. You no longer need to live life in fear. You no longer need to question the reality of God's love for you, of his goodness, and of his sovereign hand over all of his creation. It is finished, says it all. It is finished, answers every doubt. Every issue. Evil is defeated. Guilt is taken away. Shame is absorbed. And alienation is undone. The way is now cleared. It's a highway. It's wide open to life with God. To life as you and I were meant to live it. To life 
that is never obstructed by the cloudiness of sin. This way has been opened never to be successfully opposed again. It's been opened once and for all. And it has everything to do with me and everything to do with you. And thanks be to God on this day that we call good. Thanks be to God that it is so. It is finished. May glory be to our God and Father. Amen.